0: And I'm going to show you a diagram here that illustrates how I see myself growing in my Christian life. As you can see, I started back there in 1932, so you can figure out my age. On my way to hell, until I met six women. Some people ask me, do, I, do you believe in women in ministry? I said, I sure do. I took six of them to get me converted. There were six Bible college students from Toronto conducting a vacation Bible school in a small little country church and myself and my sister received Christ and that of course moved me up to another whole level here in 1843. Unfortunately I was in a church in two churches actually, two churches where there was very little life in the first church. It was dying and the sins died the other church was a split out the first church had more life, met my first enemy Christian in that church but they had no teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit and I stumbled through my teenage years never knowing there was the person of the Holy Spirit who had been sent precisely to live the Christian life through me and I was struggling with my sinfulness and confessing and trying harder and I never discovered the Holy Spirit until I moved across town in 1952. 1952, yes, and uh, I'd been filled with the Spirit at a Alliance Youth Conference and from that point I moved on to a whole new level of, uh, of Christian living here. Those crosses indicate the places in my life where I've had a, a sense of uh, need and crisis where I had to go back to the cross for a second time, which I think is a very necessary truth for renewal. So uh, those crosses, there were many more than that, but I just put those ones in there. 1954 was a very important one because that's the year I got married. And if there's ever a place to get back to the cross? It's at your time of marriage, as you get off to a good start. And I uh, went through Bible College and trained This big hole here is beautiful little country of Costa Rica, Central America, where we went to learn the language, learn Spanish, very easy language, but I found it hard. But I remember writing in my diary in those days, something to the effect, when all the cultural support is gone and all the affirming people are absent, I've been stripped down to what I really am, and it's one great big disappointment. So it seems to me that that's not a bad place to begin your missionary career. Back at the cross. We escaped out of <laughs> Costa Rica, not because I learned the language, but because uh, there was a need in Colombia where we were going to get in there quickly. So we moved out. My problem with the language was that I've always had the problem of speaking too rapidly in English. Of course, that transferred over into Spanish, which is bad news because Spanish is a language where you emphasize the uh, the vowels and not the consonants that we do in English. So I was having trouble rolling that R. And one day in Colombia, when I wasn't even trying, I rolled the R because I was relaxed. And so uh, that's what that big holds about. But through our first term and our second term, and these are just uh, other areas. So I want to keep this practice getting back to the cross on a regular basis, and to um, aim at becoming a mature, sweet old man and go straight to glory about 2017. That would make me 85. I was sharing this in a seminar in. Paris a few years ago, and some guy came up to me after he said, "What's this 2017 all about?" I said, "85." Well, based on that, I should be out of here. He was actually older than that and was still firing away, so I maybe need to reconsider that. That gives you a little idea about um, where I've come from. Now, this matter of historical drift. What do I mean by that? let me just see if I can um, introduce that today in this session and then uh, in our session tomorrow I'll attempt to talk about how we can address historical drift and see it stopped and even turned around and reversed. My observations have come from those three churches. The one church which was dying has since died. The second church there's no focus on the Holy Spirit. In the providence of God, I moved across town to another church, another denomination, and just come through a revival. And that church was a revived church. And that church stamped me imprinted upon me poor, very basic truths. Because in that church, I saw a church that had the dynamic ministry in prayer. They believed in corporate prayer. And I learned to pray in that church. The second thing which I discovered in that church was a church that really believed in the deeper work of the Holy Spirit. And every year had conferences on that subject, the deeper life. And that was a very, very special time every year in that church. It was also a church that had gone through a time of revival which broke into an awakening. And there had been a great number of conversion of couples in their mid-20s early thirties and that church continued to see uh, people coming to know Christ in, in, in large numbers and finally it was a church that was passionate about missions and one year while I was attending there in the early years they had a man come to speak on missions, his name was Dr. Oswald J. Smith of People's Church in Toronto and of course you know what he spoke on. he spoke on missions and that night during that week I. And forward, I yielded my life to Christ for the sake of missions, and through that, God called me in the ministry. So we went off to Bible College. Since we were both high school dropouts, we were a little fearful of a course they had called um, English Composition and Grammar that they gave to everybody the first year. And if you were really bad, you had to take five classes per week. In English and grammar. And if you weren't, weren't quite so bad, you totally took three. So we thought we'd better do a little study. So we were, we were just getting married, so we took a grammar book on our honeymoon to prepare for this <laughs> course at the Bible College. Obviously, we didn't study very much because we got into the five-hour course for those who were yeah, very much in need of this course. So we survived that. And that later on became my salvation in Spanish language study. I had trouble with the phonetics, but I had my grammar down cold, and so I did language and able preaching. Well, those three churches reminded me of what happens to churches over time. And then I became part of um, the administration of our mission, and I traveled uh, quite widely in all of our mission fields around the world. And I kept seeing places like India, where you see a beautiful hospital. A Methodist hospital, they said, "That's a Christian hospital. It's wonderful." But when I investigated, it was a Christian hospital 40 years ago. But today, it's just a secular hospital with a Christian name. Same thing with schools. One time, they were Christian, vibrant, but today, they're nominal, it's just the name only. And so, I begin to see all this, and I begin to wonder about this whole matter of what happens organizations over time. How they seem to drift away from their core values, from their original vision, and become very, very nominal in their outlook. So there's a lot of studies uh, that have been done by sociologists in this subject. They talk about the Atlantic seaboard, where there is their uh, beautiful yacht clubs today. But if you trace them back in their history, one day those were um, life-saving stations. And when the ships would come in and when they crash in the rocks, those people would go out there and save lives. But as they grew, time went on, they became more and more comfortable, built better facilities, got more involved in social action. And no longer today do they worry about ships, people losing their lives. They're now very affluent yacht clubs. How could that happen? over a period of 40 years or three years. And so this whole matter historical drift caught my attention and I began to uh, study the matter a little bit. Um, one illustration which has been used quite a bit to discover, to remind us what happens is um, the old story of the frog in the kettle. George Barna has a book called The Frog in the Kettle, in which he talks about this subject how in the course of biology they take frogs and place them in a cold pan of water then they would heat the water up slowly and the frog would not react until it was too late and the frog was boiled in the water it could have leaped out there at any time but it was just kind of insensitized and that's kind of what happens it's very slow in the process unknown to those who are in in uh, direction, in control, but it happens nevertheless. Well, I have um, taken curve as an illustration of what happens over time. You start down here in this curve at 9 o'clock with a charismatic or dynamic leader. starts a movement. By 11 o'clock he has a movement on his hands. But by around 12 noon, it starts to tail off. I call this a danger zone because this is the zone where they're losing some of their vitality, some of their core values, and they begin to drift down here on this slippery curve, slippery slope. And if there's not something happening here or earlier, they drift down to the monument stage of 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and that's when God lifts His hands off that movement and picks up another movement on the upward side. That would be what has happened, based on church history. So this uh, period of time—how long does it take to drift from go from here to here? Well, it depends on factors. Maybe 50 years, maybe 40 years, maybe 100 years. But it happens on a very um, consistent basis. So. That's what I mean by historical drift. This curve, sometimes they call the cursed curve, is always at work. This works not only in Christian organizations, but also in corporations. And every social organization has to fight this problem of historical drift. Along the way, just raise your hand and just ask the questions because uh, you may not have time at the end. So that's uh, what I mean by historical drift. Now, as I mentioned, the sociologists have uh, studied this, and they really have a great time with John Wesley and the Wesleyan movement. As you recall, the Wesleyan movement was a movement in England, and it was a movement of down and outers. People were co- converted out in the streets, and they were soundly converted and became Christians, and as Christians became very hard working citizens very frugal, and then the terms of, uh, over time, they became very absolute people. That's the good news. But John Wesley observed this concept of historical drift, and he wrote this one time. Wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all of its branches." Now you people here, most of you are pretty young, in my estimation. How many of you are in the same church today as you were, say, back in your teens? It means that most of you have changed churches. And I won't probe into the reasons of change, but many times we have to walk away from churches because they have drifted. One time they were vibrant, today they are nominal. And uh, that's certainly my case with uh, having to leave those two churches and move into another denomination. Now Wesley lamented this as he got older. Somebody read something he said later on that was his answer. How do you avoid this? Well, later on he wrote, the only way to avoid this uh, eternal, vicious circle, the thing that made you great, that were positive, had turned into being your greatest obstacle. Later on he said, the way to prevent this is to give and to give and to give and to keep on giving. And Wesley did that in value with a few pences in his pocket at the end of his life. But uh, this is what he saw in terms of social development with this matter of historical drift. <coughs> yes, that's one of the things I want to talk about What are the causes of this. That certainly is one of them. All right. Let me just move on here to uh, a major point here. What is the biblical evidence of this disease? You don't have a disease. You better have have a biblical disease. Well, if you're turning your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, and if you read verses 6 to 10, who's got a Bible back there? By the way, um, I know the weebs up here who are from northern Canada. I know our brother Nair over here and this lady here. Um, who moved around is a pastor's wife. I see. Where do you live? South Florida? Okay. This gentleman back here? Okay. I know Mrs. Smith's this all back there from Argentina and from of Miami. And you're from? All right. We're scattered around. All right. So just uh, read that, with you please? What's your first name? David? Okay, David. This is Acts, or Joshua, Judges 2, 6 to 10. In verse 10. This is an illustration of three generations person being the generation of Joshua. Second one, the elders who outlived Joshua. Then thirdly, a generation that grew up that did knew about the Lord or the Lord and uh, did not know the Lord or know the works he had done. So three generations. So one of the big causes of historical drift is generational slippage. In other words, one generation is strong passionate. The second generation is less passionate sometimes by the third generation is actually lost. Now, some of you, many of you know the name Bruce Wilkerson. He's well known for number of things. Walk through the Bible. What else? What other book do you write? Prayer Jabez, went Through the evening. <laughs> but his best book is this one. It is called called the Three Chairs Three Chairs Seminar and the book I'd like to recommend is First Hand Faith it's all about how to rear kids to give them not a second hand faith but a first hand faith and that's a big answer to historical historical as that leads to families passing on the faith so uh, that book is uh, worth, well worth the Christ's because it talks about how to raise kids with a first hand faith. Bruce Wilkerson. Bruce Wilkerson used to hit up a uh, who uh, walked through the Bible and now has got a, another organization. He works in South Africa. So here's the first generation characteristics. First generation um, knows God, and the second generation knows about God, and the third generation does not know God. And this mother's uh, first-hand faith, second-hand faith, third-hand faith, no faith. The second one here has to do with um, characteristics. Compromise first-generation, or rather commitment, compromise second, conflict third works its way down. There's uh, excellent um, material there in this whole matter of slippage uh, of... bottom line is, Christ is Lord of the first generation, Christ is Savior, and Christ is a religious leader in the third generation. But what disturbs me most is the last section here, dealing with Scripture. First generation lives by what the commandments of the Bible teach. This is what we're hearing these days in this seminar. Exactly what the Bible teaches. The second generation lives by what their fellow Christians do and believe is right to do. Have you ever been in an evangelical Sunday school class of adults where they're going around the circle and like, What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Those seven those classes just drive me up the wall, drive me out of the church. What does God want? first generation what do you think and who cares what you do so you have these different uh, standards but the last one here is the Bible standards of behavior are absolute regardless of culture and this is about the uh, little phrase that they use these days to refer to the Bible and the parts I don't think they is for today term is time and place specific. That was just for the Corinthians. It's not for us today. And that's a little phrase they use. And we don't use that phrase, but by our ignoring of some passages as it relates to marriage, for example, we'd certainly have fallen into that category. So the bottom line is what's right in God's eyes, first generation. What's right in your eyes, second generation. And what's right in my eyes third generation who cares about the bible i just heard the other day from a professor speaking in our church last sunday about the da vinci code i have not taken time to read that book thankfully but it said it is he was telling us that one in every five canadians have read that book it sells about 20 to thirty thousand copies per day a movie's coming out in within a month or two And it's a novel, but the author, Dan Smith, or Dan Brown, believes that all these things he has in his novel actually happened. And it is a direct hit on the inspiration of Scripture. He promotes that the Gospels were written in the 4th century. And on and on goes, to see how fickle people are in our culture, and even in our church, this Dan Brown professes to be a Christian. Well, anyhow, this is what happens with generational slippage, which is a big factor. If you could go over to um, Jeremiah 2 for a moment. Jeremiah 2. And we read here in chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Who's got... um, All right. Right there. 2.11 to 13. Thank you. This is what God is saying to Jeremiah to people of Israel. They've forsaken him, and they have uh, forsaken the uh, fountains of living water, and they've hewn their own cisterns. You're ever out the, river and the Holy Land, you'll see these um, ruins, and you'll see always in the ruin a little section of the house which was a cistern. I come from the farm in Ontario, I know their cisterns. They're great for retaining water, but they have a tendency to leak and they tend to crack, and have a lot of stale water in them and all that. But this is what these people are trusting in. And sometimes asked, ask, what do you think is the greatest impediment for receiving the revival from God that we desperately need? And my major answer is it is the fact that the evangelical church is satisfied with substitutes and getting by substitutes. Why can they do that? They can do it because everybody else is doing it. So you look okay. If you're all using substitutes, you compare yourselves on Monday morning with the other pastors in town, well, We have our problems, but we're getting by. Good attendance yesterday. uh, Money was up and all those kinds of things. But uh, there's a lot of, I have a whole list in my book of substitutes, evangelical substitutes. We're reading the programming in place of the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself. We're into um, uh, therapeutic prayer uh, without having warfare prayer instead of warfare prayer that actually gets through to God and the list goes on substitutes is another major cause biblical cause of uh, historical drift now over in the book of Hebrews we'll turn to it right now but the book of Hebrews has five warnings in it the second warning is found in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 and the warning there is, Beware lest you drift away from truth. Maybe you could just read that there, Sister. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, one of the warnings of Hebrews, drifting away. And that term, drifting away, is an uh, is, uh, analogy for the world of sailing. Where ships coming into harbor, and because of the carelessness of the deckhands, they they uh, they coast by, they drift by the harbor where they're supposed to dock. It's a it's a uh, term which relates to uh, carelessness in terms of um, docking at a harbor. Another major passage that talks about historical drift. Are the last words of Jesus where do you find the last words of, of Jesus in Scripture Revelation and in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 there are messages to five churches all local churches and in five of the seven churches Christ asked them to repent and uh, only two were spared Now, I ask myself the question, how old are those churches that were planted by Paul? About how old would they be? 30s? Maybe 40? In that area? How long does it take a church to drift far enough for Christ to come to repentance? Well, apparently 30 or 40 years. And that is, of course, where a lot of churches are today. He affirms certain things, but then he asks them to repent. And that was um, after only 30 years. Well, that's a little bit of a view of the uh, uh, of the uh, biblical data. There's much more could be talked about. Pharisees that were a special target of Jesus in their in this day. It's hard to believe those Pharisees 300 years earlier were very spiritual in a very very dynamic organization and people and over time they have drifted to where they were in the Gospels all right any questions on that there's any consolation? it is a biblical disease to drift unfortunately well let's uh, move on then to point two what are the causes of historical drift well there's some um, basic causes congenital kinds of defects and the biggest defect is the whole issue of uh, original sin which goes back to Genesis chapter 3 original sin and uh, there's references to that in the Psalms of David but chapter 3 of Genesis reminds us of what happened somebody read uh, Romans 5.12 please thank you so we know that sin of Adam and Eve has come down to us today and we're all born with uh, original sin and that's a big part of it, God is working to build a church that is going to be perfect with imperfect material flawed material for all sinners a second is the toll of time we often say that time is a great healer I also add time is a great eroder of truth and that has to do with generations it tends to be the erosion of truth as time goes by and um, there's a book called in name only which is a good term for for historical drift. Eddie Gibbs, he shows here what happens over time. Here's the first generation, founder and pioneer generation. Second generation, about 60% of it has now been swallowed up into nominalism, in name only. In the third generation, it's about two-thirds. In the fourth generation, it's about uh, 80 or 90%. And that's what happens over time in that curve. As you go round that curve you go down towards three o'clock, this is what happens. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, well it could of course I hadn't thought of that, but that could be true. Because it is from smaller and smaller. Well, this uh, is such a sea as you move around the world, unfortunately. And we have some very large churches in some countries like Indonesia, Philippines, but I'm afraid Great percentage of those churches are nominal great. I'm wondering about the churches in North America. let looking at the marriage issue, for and how few have um, really let Scripture speak on that, and the nominalism that produces. So, the uh, passage of time is a big factor. Then comes another one here called the um, passing the baton from one generation to another in leadership and I'll be talking a little bit more about that tomorrow when I talk about um, impeding drift but um, going back to this um, curve sometimes uh, a founding leader will hang in there till over this uh, danger area but uh, the wiser thing to do is up here about prime time, top of the curve, is when you begin to um, go through the area of tension of passing leadership on to a younger generation and passing on in such a way that there's very little slippage in vision and in um, core values. Now, some of you have been in churches with there's been a long term senior pastor. And that can sometimes be good, but the transition back to that senior pastor to another pastor. Now, I say this with uh, mixed feelings. You notice many times in church ministries where a father will pass it on to his son, Robert Schuler of the... is it called the Vast Cathedral? The Cathedral has just passed his uh, leadership over to his son officially this past week. That's been happening over a period of several years now. And um, even though there's some dangers of nepotism and all that, that often is where there's the least slippage. I don't know how much you know about the People's Church in Toronto, where pastor, but that church is now 75 years old. We've only had four pastors. Oswald J. passed it over to his son, Paul. Paul passed it over to John Hall. And now the current pastor is um, Charles Price of England. Four pastors in 75 years. And they still hold their core value. That, they, that church must spend half of their budget outside the church walls. A big part is missions. There's nothing to do outside of the church budget. So, I still have over that same period of time, the United Church of Canada, which is the largest church in Canada and the most liberal church in Canada, they merged back in 1926, about the same time as People's Church was started. And over 75 years, that church has gone from 20 articles of faith, which are solid evangelical points, they've gone from that. Today, are gaining homosexuality same period of time. What's the difference? Peoples? Uh, Oh, the uh, United Church of Canada. United Church of Canada. United. They've been going downhill during the same period. So the People's Church, very little drift. The United Church of Canada, massive drift. So that is uh, what happens of Leadership, and so your question about leadership and the transference of leadership there's a whole series of studies in that uh, in uh, the study of church growth. Uh, another um, point is the myth of redemptive lift, the myth of the event redemptive lift. Now, we all know as we work in missions, especially as the gospel comes into a country, and in the early days as people receive Christ it changes their lives spiritually but also changes their lives socially I remember being a man to Christ in Columbia his name was Jose he had, a, he had um, a large family kids weren't in school, had no shoes no money for uh, shoes but he got saved and he quit drinking and he dropped the women his mistress on the street he brought more money home the kids had shoes, they were in school that's redemptive lift. That's good news. And the gospel always brings that brings that redemptive lift. But as Wesley reminds us, the flip side of that is over time those people can become affluent and find that they're now greedy and they're trying to get ahead more and more and they're losing their spiritual uh, maturity and it's just reversal. So redemptive lift is good. It lasts for some time. I remember one time asking Donald McGavern of church growth, how do you reach the middle class in Columbia? And his answer was, you work with the lower class. And within a generation, you will have a middle class church because the redemptive lift will move people up and they'll become not just um, elementary school kids, but they'll be uh, high school graduates and university. So that's happened. That's the good news. Along with that comes the danger of nominalism. Any questions on that? <clears throat> All right. Uh, the another big factor here is the uh, the failure of leadership to stand firm on the slippery slope. The slippery slope. Now talked about the great evangelical disaster of the 1980s that uh, Francis Schaeffer talked about. It was all about the accommodation of scripture to culture. Here's one of my more complicated diagrams. <laughs> I've tried to diagram what happens, what happens in uh, culture. Here is, for example, the Canadian culture, this is, uh, basic Canadian culture here. And here's a church sitting in the middle of this culture. And uh, along comes these uh, subcultures on the edge. Some years ago, we had this subculture of uh, cohabitation. Initially, the government resisted that as being wrong. But over time, little by little, it took it in. So, we look at our income tax forms today we see that people living common law have all the rights of people who are married. That's what happens. A bigger culture takes in the smaller culture and affirms it. And the whole matter of uh, homosexuality, as I mentioned the other night there, it started off as uh, same sex dancing back in 65, and today in 2006 it's. Uh, has changed the uh, definition of marriage to include same sex people. So all of that is now endorsed by the government. Now, what happens to the church in all of this? Well, the church is sitting here, foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. It does not change today, it's there for tomorrow. And the church does not move, its foundation is eternal, its truths are absolute. But what happens with culture is unless it's strong leadership, it keeps shifting a little by little, about ten years behind the subculture in the government. And so what the government approved, the same with the cohabitation of people, the church is beginning to accept as well. And homosexuality is beginning to be approved by churches. And uh, we're dealing right now with the whole issue of marriage. And we've dealt with the issue of, with um, sort of the issue of women in ministry and many other issues. And just coming down the pike, just ahead of us, is another big one. What is it? Abortion, we've been on that for quite a while about abortion, and it's still out there as a live issue, probably much more live down here than Canada. is coming it's right in the heels of um, of, um, of the other things that's been permitted about the same-sex marriage and the whole matter of homosexuality in, in the, in the, uh, the wedge is in the door because some pastors are saying now that um, there, are, there is a uh, uh, homosexual gene some people are just bored that way and just as they have to fight against to become, remain uh, chaste as, uh, as um, homosexuals, just that we have to struggle with uh, our heterosexuality. And uh, they're just people who are, are born that way, so we can't condemn them. We need to help them. And I hear evangelicals starting to say that. And that's just, uh, I think, uh, moving down that road. Yes, that's a good point because um, there's two ways that churches go liberal one way they go liberal through their leadership that's trained in a seminary that's gone liberal they become the pastor of your church and little by little they hire their own staff that's one way the other more subtle way is the lifestyle of Christians and churches the liberal lifestyle I don't have it here but I'll get uh, the table here where George Barna has studied 150 lifestyle issues and he's compared what non-Christians do with them and what Christians do with them including the lottery, including abortion right down the line and he's worked out the percentages of non-Christians and Christians and his conclusion is there is very little difference between the lifestyle of non-Christians and lifestyle of Christians so, these people come to church on Sunday and they've picked up these lifestyles and all these um, things that's not necessarily um, rounds for, for being disciplined, but just a little bit off. The whole matter of uh, use of alcohol and the whole matter of other things that come in and lifestyle issues. And that puts tremendous pressure in the church and on the pastor. And little by little, That can force a church to shift their leadership to accommodate those people because they don't want to lose them and lose their money. So it's a very subtle thing that happens in terms of uh, lifestyle issues. So, those are some of the causes of uh, historical drift. And one of the theses in my books is that historical drift is inevitable, it's going to happen even reverse drift over time. Here's another uh, version of the curve which um, shows you following the life cycle. And uh, this is um, birth down here and this is death over here. And this is the growing stages of adolescence and adulthood. This is prime up on top here. And then down here we have uh, maturity, emptiness syndrome, old age, and death. And a uh, consultant came in and he asked us a question the very first day. Did in small groups. I want you to evaluate your denomination and see if you can pinpoint where it is in this graph our organization is 118 years old with a small missionary emphasis well we broke up small groups came back together and our consensus was we were here in the empty nest syndrome dangerous place to be you have sort of our warm fuzzy feelings about the past but you're not too sure about the future and right down here is aging and death And our challenge was, what can we do, in terms of structural renewal, to see this reversed and get back up here again to prime? That's the big challenge. I hope to talk a little bit on Sunday morning about revival and God's role in revival and reversing historical drift. But there we are. We're very happy with that. but uh, That was where we found ourselves. Well, we, um, I was talking about the, about the um, thesis. The thesis was that historic drift is inevitable because it's dealing with flawed material and it, happens among secular organizations, as well as Christian organizations. But, it can be reversed. And the other part of the thesis is, churches don't drift, colleges don't drift, mission organizations don't drift, denominations don't drift, only the people that lead them drift. And so the ball comes back to our court. What are we going to do about our own personal renewal? The biggest part of my answer tomorrow is on what we can do personally, with personal renewal. Up there on the counter on the table there's a book called Fresh Encounter by Henry Blackaby, Southern Baptist man who wrote uh, Experiencing God. This is a workbook for Christian workers on how to have a personal renewal Revival in your own life. And that's a very uh, helpful little book. All right, our time is just about up. Any other questions you want to ask? A lot of patience. I find myself an elder again in our church after about uh, 14 years. And it's an interesting experience to be an elder. And, uh, I really think. The biggest and most important decisions are not made by the non headquarters, not district level, nor even at, um, at the uh, pastoral level, but the most important decisions that helps to curb drift is happening on Wednesday night at the meeting of the elders board and the church ruling board, where they're grappling with issues coming to them from the culture. Will we marry Deacon So and so's daughter, even though she's pregnant, even though she's married non Christian? Keep in mind that deacon so and so is a big deal to our church. So the elders have to make those tough decisions. They have to be able to see further than others see, sooner than others see, and have to see more than others see if you're going to be true leaders. And right there in the Elders meeting on the Wednesday night is where I think decisions are made that will accommodate drift or will impede drift. That's my uh, my uh conviction that it's not easy to the mm-hmm. okay, Absolutely. But it doesn't drift away from us, we drift away from it. Especially as we move on from first generation to second generation. How many here are um, second generation Christians? Or more? Well, my hand's up. And uh, how many are first generation Christians? We need you. We need you around. These All right. If there's no other questions. All in some prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. We be able to talk about the things pertaining to your kingdom. We thank you, Father, for these believers who come from different parts of the country. Each one with special concerns and each one with a concern for marriage and we want to remember why we're here this week. We know that marriage is just one major part of a general drifting away from truth and Father we just pray for these who are here today who are younger and input is going to be very significant they will become the key leaders in the next few years of their churches help them to know how to speak with love with wisdom and with patience as they would share some of these truths in the seminar with their own church and their own pastors father just sanctify them and keep them in prayer, and help them to be ready to pay the price to see change take place around them for the sake of their children and their grandchildren. We ask all this in Jesus' name of thanksgiving. Amen.